This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Tuesday, December the 19th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, 2023 has seen some highs and some lows when it comes to disability issues in Canada. Rabia Hadar and a newspaper company in Nova Scotia has started to put obituaries behind a paywall. Journalist Rebecca Dingwell offers a few more details onto the situation. And there's one more edition of the weekly news quiz to cap off 2023. Contestants Karen McGee, Alicia Yardley, and Elizabeth Moeller will decide who gets to carry bragging rights through the holidays. I was texting with Karen McGee yesterday. Her head is on a swivel. I think she's ready to bring her A game today. So everybody look out when that one comes your way in about one hour and 45 minutes. But the show begins with the top story of the day. And for the second day in a row, it's all about your money and the economy. Stats Canada has released its inflation data for November. The year-over-year rate of inflation held steady at 3.1%. Lower fuel price prices were part of that stabilization. Grocery prices still outpaced general inflation at 4.7%, but that does represent a pretty good decline from last month. Last month, the number was still in the fives, so getting down to 4.7% is a mild victory. That data just came out about 15, 20 minutes ago. Haven't had a chance to comb through it just yet. I'll try to offer you a little bit more analysis on that tomorrow. There is some specific data about year-over-year rent increases across the country. Michelle Zadikian crunches those numbers. The data released by Rentals.ca and Urban Nation shows the annual rate of rent growth in Canada continues to moderate. The average cost of a one-bedroom unit in November was $1,911, up 13.6% from the same month last year, while the average asking price for a two-bedroom was $2,260, up 10.5% annually. The report also notes the average roommate rents are nearing four figures, with the Asking price for shared accommodations in BC, Alberta, Ontario, and Quebec growing 16.2% over the past year to a record high of $960. Michelle Zedekian, the Canadian Press. I'm going to quibble with one word that Michelle used in that report. Right in the early part, she used the word data shows that it's moderating. On what planet are year-over-year rent increases of 13%? a moderation? On what planet of shared accommodations going up by over 16% a moderation? Michelle did a great job breaking down some of those numbers for you, but words matter in journalism, and Michelle is fantastic, fantastic at what she does. But I don't know how the word moderate got in there. The driving forces of inflation right now continuing to be groceries and rent. Groceries and rent and the cost of housing 
with the volatility coming in the name of fuel prices. Interesting, interesting times. And yes, this will be explored in the news panel on Friday. Staying in the economy, this is one that I know is a bugaboo for a lot of you. Retailers are thinking, are rethinking self-checkout machines. Rita Foley takes a closer look. The idea was that you could avoid long lines at the stores by scanning and bagging your own items. Employees wouldn't have to do it themselves, and retailers could save on labor costs. And all that has happened. But there are some gripes. The sometimes clunky technology, workers having to stand around and monitor both humans and machines, and retailers dealing with theft. Now, during the critical holiday season, some retailers are adding restrictions, while others are shutting down self-checkout completely in some stores. Walmart removed self-checkout kiosks in three stores in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Still, self-checkout isn't going away, and plenty of people love it. But retailers have been adding cameras or sensors to monitor shoppers. I'm Rita Foley. If you go deep into the Now with Dave Brown podcast archive from earlier this year, myself, Jenny Bovard, and Megan Gilmore did a whole segment about uh, the pros and cons of self-checkout machines and really applied a disability and accessibility lens to it. You have to go a little bit deeper into the archives to uh, find it, but definitely worth a listen if you want to apply the disability lens to the conversation of self-checkouts. Okay, over to the world of technology. I want you to pay close attention to this story because it's going to to relate to the daily polls. Elon Musk wants to open a technology-based school in Texas. Jim Ryan has the story. He's made his mark on social media, the space industry, and electric vehicles. Now Elon Musk has set his sights on education. Tax filings show the founder of Tesla and SpaceX has donated $100 million to establish a K-12 through grade school focused on science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, STEM. The ultimate goal, according to the documents, is to seek accreditation to launch a university here in Texas. Jim Ryan, ABC News. As I mentioned, that is going to be a topic of conversation as part of the daily polls. But before you get today's question, let's give you the results of yesterday's question where you were asked at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. How far along are you in your holiday shopping? 42% of you said you're done. 50% of you said you're almost done. 0% of you said, I just started. And 8% of you said, I have not started. So I am uh, totally down with the 8% of you who are being totally honest, who are just saying, I'm biding my time, waiting for my opportunity to pounce using the old uh, Dave Brown method of holiday shopping. Although, like I mentioned to you yesterday, I'm uh, almost done because uh, the beauty of online shopping uh, made it pretty easy for me to get my stuff done this year. A couple comments here over on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. Craft and Deborah says, I don't buy gifts. I sent cash to my grandsons. Way to go, Deborah. And that takes care of my Xmas gifts. And Philip from Claire, New Brunswick writes, my holiday shopping is all done and I'm so happy, thrilled and excited for the holidays to come and for the new year to come as well. Love that positivity from uh, Philip. He also says... He loves AMI 
very much. Oh, very nice of you to say that, Philippe. And one more quick follow-up before I get to today's daily poll. Uh, Marco Pasqua and I were talking in the third segment of the show yesterday about making the holidays a little bit more inclusive, and I was mentioning big fonts on cards or even using Braille on cards if someone you know reads Braille. And Amanda Shikarchi, who was the entertainment reporter on the show yesterday, sent me this text after the show that I said, I've, I've, got, to, I've got to read this. I've got to read this because it's such a great suggestion if you want to make your cards more inclusive. So Amanda writes to me via text because, you know, she has that kind of inside uh, knowledge to Dave Brown. Hey, thanks for having me on the show today. Nice to have you on the show, Amanda. Just wanted to add to the conversation about Braille cards. A great website is the Braille Superstore because they do this thing where you can email them what you want the card to say and they'll print it and deliver to you a Braille card. My friend did that for me for her graduation gift and it was wonderful. So thanks to Amanda for adding that component to the conversation as well. Okay, let's get to the daily poll for today at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You heard me play that story about Elon Musk wanting to open his own school in Texas with the possibility of opening a university one day. So I'm asking you, would you attend a school run by a celebrity, yes or no? Got a couple of academics here in the fold this morning in Elizabeth Moeller and Laura Bain. Laura Bain, would you attend a school run by a celebrity? Yeah, you know, I think it really depends on the celebrity. I'm certainly not interested <laughs> yeah. in attending the Elon Musk school, but yeah, sure, you know, I don't see why not. I mean, I, I certainly don't think that celebrities should have their hand in public schools and um, universities, but private schools, absolutely. I was trying to think, you know, who, which celebrity would I attend their school? And I'm thinking maybe like David Suzuki, if he was running a school, I think I would attend. Or uh, Oprah, you know, she has quite a bit of experience with running schools. I feel like I have a lot of sort of trust in Oprah. So maybe, uh, you know, in that circumstance, I would... Uh, would attend those schools. Yeah, I think especially if there's a skill set involved, right? Like if Gordon Ramsay ran a cooking school and I wanted yeah. to be a great chef one day, maybe I'd want to go to Gordon Ramsay's school. But I would want to make sure that he's got his fingerprints all over it, that it's not sort of uh, a bunch of Gordon Ramsay apostles or, uh, you know, soothsayers that are claiming this is a Gordon Ramsay school. I, I want a little bit more connection. Laura, I like what you mentioned about some of the funding side of this. Not enough time right now to talk about the charter school situation in America, where for a lot of tax reasons, celebrities end up opening schools and end up siphoning money out of the public school purses. Not enough time to talk about that today. Not all charter schools are good. Not all charter schools are bad. I would suggest that anybody who's interested, hop over to their YouTube machine and look up the segment that John Oliver did on last week tonight about charter schools. Like, unbelievably good. John Oliver continues to do some of the best work in journalism and comedy in the uh, modern broadcast world. But I'm happy you brought up that side of it. Elizabeth Moeller, you're an academic as well. Would you attend a school run by a celebrity? I would if I was trying to improve a skill. So like if Simon Whitfield, who's like a very high up triathlete, was opening a school and I was specifically looking at upping my game, I would, but there'd have to be a reason beyond they're a celebrity. So I think like Laura talked about the skill and I, I think I would also want to understand a little bit about their model of education. Like what is their methodology around pedagogy? How How is the school being run? Um, I, I really want to think about the quality of the education I'm going to get there besides 
besides, you know, the name of the person on the front of the school. Yeah, I like that you mentioned what's the core purpose of the school. And going back to this charter school side of things, a couple notable celebrities in the United States who have charter schools, uh, Jalen Rose, basketball broadcaster and former basketball player, runs the Jalen Rose Leadership Academy in Michigan, which is an opportunity for a lot of kids who are from, uh, let's call them difficult backgrounds, to get a high caliber of education. And that school has been met with wide ranges of applause. And then you have schools like uh, Pitbull's school in Florida, where I'm not going to say anything mean, but let's just say Mr. International is not exactly creating a Rhodes Scholars at his charter school. Would you attend a school run by a celebrity? Yes or no? At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can also chime in via email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or pick up the phone and give the show a ring. 1-866-509-4545. Coming up next, Jacob Alordi has starred in two big movies this year, Priscilla and Saltburn. Entertainment critic Michael McNeely will spotlight the actor's performance in a special review. A star to put on your radar. Frame your telescope up. And get ready for another segment on Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv or in beautiful audio at amiplus.ca. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. One of the coolest things about the entertainment industry is stars are always on the rise. Sometimes it can be a slow build, piece by piece, brick by brick. But 2023 was an interesting year for an actor like Jacob Alordi. You might know him from HBO's Euphoria. He also found himself in two big films this year. Here's a taste of his performance as Elvis in the biopic, Priscilla. Just what is the intent here, Mr. Presley? You got women throwing themselves at you. Why my daughter? Well, sir, I happen to be very fond of your daughter. Priscilla's driven to Graceland and reclines in a tub. She's much more mature than her age. At a casino. Elvis climbs out of a pool and on top of her. You don't have to worry about her. She shoots a bottle and models a gown. Black hair and more eye makeup. She applies lashes and mascara. I don't know if I like it. He also played Felix Catton alongside actor Barry Keegan in the psychological drama Saltburn. Here's a clip from the film. Hey, that is so kind. Thank you. I mean, are you sure? I mean, it's a bit of a faff wheeling you back to college. Oh, you, you want me to take yours oh, back? No, no, no. I just... Uh... I'm sorry, I just thought, I thought... I, I mean, I can wheel it back to college. It's, it's not that far. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm sorry I don't know your name. I'm, uh, I'm Felix. Oliver. Oliver. They shake hands. Oliver, I love you. I love... Felix kisses Oliver's bike helmet. I love you, I love you. Seriously, okay. thank you so much, mate. So Jacob Alordi is officially on Michael McNeely's radar, and because Michael's an entertainment critic, he wants to put Jacob Alordi on your radar. Michael's with me live in Studio 7 here at beautiful AMI HQ in North York, Ontario. Hello, Michael. 
Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. So Jacob Elordi filmed both movies just three weeks apart. What did you make of his performance in Priscilla and Saltburn? Well, let's start with Priscilla. I felt that he played a very good Elvis. Now, that being said, I had watched Austin Butler and Elvis, which is on Netflix, and that also helped me understand what Elvis is all about as a person. Priscilla, as the name mentions, is really about Elvis's wife, but we wouldn't have Elvis's wife without Elvis. And, in fact, Priscilla probably spent all her life, as she passed away recently, trying to get Elvis out of her mind and trying to make her own path. So I found the performance to be realistic, and I found it to be challenging, which is what the movie was calling for. In Saltburn, my expectations of Jacob were flipped on its head, partly due to a plot twist that I will try not to spoil, but just by mentioning the plot twist, I probably have already spoiled it. Um, but I felt that he did a good job. So the acting chops are there. You're liking the performance. One of the reasons why Jacob Elordi is uh, getting some of the attention that he is, is that he's a good-looking guy. He's a heartthrob. There's a heartthrob element to it. Uh, Michael, I, I'm never good at this, but how would you describe what Jacob Elordi looks like? I think Google probably thinks I'm a stalker because I asked it many questions this morning, including what color is Jacob's hair, which is brown, um, what color are his eyes? Hazel. And how tall is he? He's six foot four Ooh. inches and a half. Ooh. So I'm six foot one. In case you ever seen me stand up, I don't think you've ever seen me stand up because I've always sat down here. <laughs> um, but he also has what we call a symmetrical face, which helps with the handsomeness aspect because most people are attracted to those who have symmetrical faces. Would you say that he's been able to prove himself as more than a heartthrob? Maybe the heartthrob helps you break in, but have the acting chops proved to be more than just your standard heartthrob? I think it's important to understand that maybe characters or actors, actors that are a certain look can get typecast in that way. So Jacob has stated that he doesn't want to be known for his looks which, ironically, is going to make people pay more attention to his looks. But he does have the ability to act seriously. It's just what I call the Tom Cruise problem. If you are used to seeing Tom Cruise in action movies, and you're used to seeing him say, oh, shucks, and just be the most handsome 56-year-old who ever dabbled in Scientology, then you're not going to necessarily take him as a serious actor in the 18th century crime drama, maybe. And so it's hard sometimes when you're, when you're circled into these kinds of rules because that might be all that you end up doing and people may think of you as less than capable. One of the reasons why Elordi is on your radar is because of these two roles this year in, in maybe not blockbuster films, but certainly big releases. How common is it for an actor to sort of take on a couple of different roles in a big release in one year? Well, I was just interested because I saw the two movies and I saw that he was in both and I was like, well, this must be a busy person. But it's actually not too uncommon because different movies have different release windows. And so, not in Jacob's case, but for example, 
a person may have finished a movie and get into working on another movie, and both of those movies released simultaneously over a year span. Um, so we have Jim Carrey in 1993. Maybe you were alive then, and you may have enjoyed three movies that he did back to back to back. I think I can remember two of them would be The Mask and Dumb and Dumber. Mm. Um, and then there's Chris Evans in 2013, who did three movies back to back, too, and more or less started off being part of the Avengers around that time. Um, so I think it's it's interesting when you when you realize that people have different kinds of schedules and because of streaming and because of you know maybe the strike and COVID health scares a lot of those movies will be funneling through the pipeline right now. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of familiar names popping up if they were doing a lot of work in sort of the post 2021 world as it's all getting shot out here. So now that Jacob Elordi is on your radar, what other work should audiences put on their radar? One of the interesting things about Jacob is that he's Australian, but he managed to do first a American accent for Priscilla, and then he did a British accent for Felix in um, Saltburn. And now I think he's going to be taking on a Canadian accent, so I don't know if we should be worried or not. <laughs> but he's going to be in a movie, ironically, called Old Canada. So definitely keep an eye out for that. Um, and it's also interesting to see his name popping up all over the place, because I think part of having two movies come out so close together is because marketing professionals and agents are really trying to put him on people's radar. In both Priscilla and Saltburn, he played supporting rules. And I think, you know, it's a good place for him to be, but hopefully sometime he will get to lead his own movie and people will mention how handsome he is because he'll just be irrelevant. But I think we all know that people will still find out then to mention about him. I mean, if you're handsome, you're handsome. Ryan Gosling's one of the best actors on earth, but people still talk about how hot he is. That's true. <laughs> Michael, uh, this is not the only time you and I are talking this week. I will talk to you again on Thursday with uh, some of your best films of 2023. So talk to you in 48 hours. Yes, and spoiler alert, I think Barry Keoghan and Jacob Elwoody made Saltburn hit that list. Hey, all right. Spoiler alert on the uh, on the radar already. That's entertainment critic Michael McNeely. Like I said, Michael will be back on Thursday. Coming up next, the British Columbia government is taking steps to preserve its environmental landscape. Lawrence Gunther discusses their latest initiative for biodiversity and ecosystem health. They've put together a framework. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The British Columbia government is taking steps to pre preserve its environmental landscape. The government has announced its third initiative on this file with the Biodiversity and Ecosystem Health Framework. The framework is meant to deliver on a promise made in 2021 to maintain and enhance biodiversity. 
To provide more background on the story is Lawrence Gunther. Lawrence is the host of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther. You can find that show Saturdays at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-audio. Hello, Lawrence. Hi, Dave. So, Lawrence, this is a uh, multi-pronged approach by the B.C. government to shift, uh, shift the way that logging companies are harvesting wood in the province. What are the other two? Dave, we've been talking about this for a few years now, and this is the third time. And and uh, in the, in this fall, they've done three things now. They've got the biodiversity agreement, which means, you know, no longer is logging first. Now it's biodiversity and ecosystem health comes first. The second is you've got a tripartite agreement. So you've got federal government, provincial government, and First Nations sitting at the table together to make decisions, to share the power decision and management uh, decision process. And the third is... How do we distribute a billion dollars to the stakeholders that are going to be affected by this? If you're not going to allow forestry, if you're going to take back forestry rights, because this is what it comes down to, Dave. They've got the rights, you know, the, the logging companies have the rights and have the leases to log a bunch of land. And now you're saying, you know what, that's not going to count anymore. We're starting over. So what are the implications in regard to Indigenous rights and reconciliation? Dave, this is a huge step towards meeting the demand that the Indigenous people have been saying, you know, we need to be at the table, right? They're claiming, and probably they're right, that, you know, the B.C. government has been leading the way in terms of how trees are, are, are cut down. They've been calling the shots every five to ten years. The forestry minister decides what regions will be harvested, where the harvesting will take place in those regions, and making sure enough trees are left standing so that the forestry can continue to go on and on forever, right? The, you know, they don't cut down all the trees in a region, but you cut down a, a stand, and then you come back maybe five or ten years later, and you cut down another stand while the other ones grow back. Well, this changes all that, and it puts uh, ecosystem health first. So that that's a big step in the right direction for sure. And it puts First Nations in charge of identifying and helping to identify what regions need to be left alone and where those protected areas need to be established. How is that going to change the forestry processes? It's it's a complete reversal of the paradigm shift, right? Instead of putting logging first and the and the sustainability of the logging industry first, this is putting the health of the ecosystem first. So you have you have to establish what areas you have to look at a region, and then you identify okay these these areas of this region are sensitive. These areas are 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 important. They have old growth trees, which is important to everybody, right? I mean that's something that always gets the media attention. It gets the attention of the protesters when they start to see these giant, you know, trees that are four, five, six hundred years old come crashing down. People get upset. And and when you see in, in endangered areas that affect animals that are endangered, salmon, bears, you know, whatever, spotted owls, people get upset. So they, they want to have these protected areas well established and then identify those areas outside of those protected areas that can be forested. So it's a complete change and uh, and putting the system in a, in a totally different process. So what does that mean for any forestry activity inside a protected area? They have to... The main thing is, Dave, is when they establish these protected areas, you the, the forestry industry won't have the power anymore to influence that decision-making process. It used to be a lot of these protected areas were areas of a region that had low forestry value, 
you know, smaller trees, difficult to get to, steep mountainsides, steep valleys, you know, where trees were, even if they were good-sized trees, they were hard to reach. They had no way to get the machinery in and out. And so they just, all that area that was not profitable to harvest, we said, okay, that's going to be the protected area. And all this area over here where we can harvest uh, efficiently, and profitably and has the most valuable trees will be the areas where we can where forest. That might be changed now, right? Like it might be now that the, the best trees and the best forests and the most beautiful, valuable trees will be protected and the more difficult areas will be open for forestry. You know, the areas where people don't see or it's less valuable, the trees have less value, they're not as big, they're not as old. You know, Dave, sometimes old trees, if they're growing in really you know, not sustainably healthy areas of, of forest, they, they grow old, but they don't grow big. So you can have a three or 400 year old tree that doesn't look three or 400 years old. In other areas where you can have big trees that grow much faster, it all depends on the, uh, the ecosystem. And, and this is all going to be taken into account now as well. What's been the response from First Nations representatives and stakeholders? Well, it's mixed. You know, they're happy to be included at the table for sure. And uh, they think, though, that it's missed the opportunity to identify what's been going on now on the West Coast, the the establishment of Indigenous protected and controlled areas or Indigenous protected and conserved areas. So we've seen these IPCAs um, being announced by different First Nations uh, communities on the West Coast where they've identified a section of their their territory and said, look, this is going to be a protected area that we're going to conserve and protect and watch over. And um, none of those areas have been officially recognized by any level of government. You know, it's basically governments are saying, well, hang on, we're the ones that establish parks. We're the ones that have the rules for establishing, you know, protected areas. We can't just hand that over to First Nations people and let them do it. But this is now so, you know, those IPCAs have not yet been officially identified. It's starting to happen. And they say this could have this these agreements that have been reached by the BC government could have put that process in, into um, into sort of official recognition into the rule books, let's say. So not just like a, a gift, not just a, a sort of a favor, a one-off type deal, but actual rules that would allow uh, First Nations communities to establish these IPCAs, govern them, manage them protect them, establish the rules that these IPCAs will be managed under. Because just because you have a protected area doesn't mean all forestry has to stop, right? It's been about 12 months since the federal government made a commitment to protect 30% of land and water by the year 2023. How does that policy connect to this decision in B.C.? That's a good question, Dave, because really this is driving the the federal government. They made this commitment. They met their uh, they're on track to meet their 25 percent by the year 2025. But they have to get to 30 percent of all land, 30 percent of all uh, oceans protected by 2030. This agreement uh, is is official recognition that the B.C. government will work towards that and that First Nations communities will work towards that. So now the federal government has these two very important players in British Columbia on side to make this happen. You can't say that's the same with a lot of other provinces, right? It's happening in federal federal crown land, but it's not happening necessarily 
on provincially controlled territory. So the federal government has control of the oceans and it can it happens there. But the Great Lakes, you need to get the provinces involved with that too in terms of water and land. You need to get the provinces involved. So BC, they have that. They have that permission now. But there's some that say, you know, just protecting 30% of a, of a ecosystem, of a region may not be enough. That if you really want to protect an ecosystem, it may need 70%, 80% of that region to be protected and only 20 or 30% could be left to, for development, for mining, for forestry, for say hydro dams, for tourism, recreation, you know, ski resorts, things like that, and airports. So it's it's not, it, you know, it's a good starting point, 30 by 30, but there's many who believe that it's not enough. Lawrence, that's the forestry side of the equation in British Columbia. What's coming up on Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther? Oh, Dave, we have a three-part series, and we just dropped the first part. So it starts with... Um, Lily talking about how marine mammals communicate underwater and there's a hearing test that, uh, you know, humans can hear from 20 hertz up to 20,000 hertz. So you can join in on that hearing test and see where you pick up and drop off on that process. <laughs> you can see how whaley you are. You see if you can actually be a whale out there in the ocean. <laughs> Well, if you're going to communicate with dolphins, you got to you got to be able to hear yeah, them. You got to speak the language. I don't think there's a, a category for that on Duolingo, uh, dolphin no, lingo. No, no, probably not. Probably not. And uh, and then and then okay. So the th three part series. There's a uh, Brent Sturton. He's a 25 year um, National Geographic photographer. He's a Canon camera ambassador. He's got more awards for his photography than you can shake a stick at, Dave. Just pages and pages of awards. So we we had a chance to sit down with uh, Brent and talk to him about what's it take to become an environmental conflict photographer, where he sees conflict. He goes into the worst parts of the world three or four times a year and documents these conflicts. Wow. And then he talks in part two, so that's out now, and in part two, which will be coming soon, that's going to be where he talks about his documenting what it's like to be blind in third world parts of the world. And he did a huge worldwide documentary on, on that and, and about blind people in, in developing parts of the world. And in the last part, which will come out in January, he talks about, you know, we talk about, you know, what do you do with those images in your mind? And how do you deal with that from a mental health perspective? How do you keep yourself, you know, w witnessing all this, you know, as a sighted person? And how, you know, I think there's some important lessons there in terms of how do you visualize and how do you turn that visualization off? Sounds like a very interesting three-part series to keep folks company over the holidays. Lawrence, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays to you and the family. Talk to you in 2024. Thanks, Dave. Good luck to you and have a great time. Uh, be safe in your travels. Yeah, well, I'm traveling uh, not far from you, heading back to the uh, National Capital Region on Saturday. So, uh, so we'll oh, right be breathing the same air. That's Lawrence <laughs> Gunther. He's the uh, host of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther. You can find that show Saturdays at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-audio. You can find Lawrence on Twitter at Lawrence Gunther. In 60 seconds, you can find Elizabeth Moeller in the weather story of the day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Rob Westgate with your morning business minutes. 
Bay Street benefited from a strong performance by the energy sector yesterday. Toronto's S&P TSX gaining 94 points, closing at 20,623. U.S. markets were also higher on average. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average added 0.86 points to settle at 37,306, while the Nasdaq rose 91 points, up to 14,905. Over to the Asian markets this morning, Japan's Nikkei is up 460 points at 33,219. As for the Hang Seng in Hong Kong, it's down 124 points at 16,505. Statistics Canada is set to release its November Consumer Price Index report this morning, and the Bank of Japan has kept its long-standing easy credit policies unchanged. As for the loonie, it's trading overseas this morning at 74.70 cents U.S. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Rob Westgate. Thank you very much, Rob. You heard uh, Rob mention the Stats Canada inflation data. It did indeed drop, if you missed the top of the show, 3.1% year over year. So a holding steady month over month, but a 3.1% price increase year over year. Okay, that's business. Let's head to the world of weather with Elizabeth Moeller. Elizabeth, a little bit chilly and uh, snowy walking into work today in southern Ontario. Yes, it certainly was. Unfortunately, Ontario is getting hit with a pretty big blast of winter this week. That storm we talked about yesterday on the East Coast, they're experiencing powerful winds and potentially historic rains from that major storm. And this storm is going to briefly bring cooler and more typical winter weather to southern Ontario. So for many places today, it might be the coldest day of the month with temperatures plummeting and dipping way below that freezing mark. Um, and that cold air is going to trigger a round of lake effect snow. That strong storm from the U.S. is pulling moisture from the Gulf and is going to head up to the East Coast. That heavy shower in the eastern Ontario, they're expected to ease up this afternoon, though, so good news. And as that storm moves through, colder air from the north will coil in behind it causing snow squalls in southern Ontario. So in that traditional snow belt region, so areas near Lake Huron and Georgian Bay, they could see up to locally over 10 centimeters of snowfall. So a good time to have those shovels and ice picks handy. <laughs> they can handle it. They can handle it. They ten, can ten, handle 10 centimeters it. in Huron County, that's nothing. Well, that that is, that is true, but it's uh, still good to have the shovel on hand. Elizabeth, thank you for this. You mentioned the storm in the Atlantic provinces. I'll have an update on that in the regional news update in about Excellent. 20 minutes. Coming up after the break, there were some ups and downs in 2023 when it came to the experience of people with disabilities. Rabia Hadar will break down some of the highlights and talk about a few of the lowlights too. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Dedicated viewers and listeners will know the disability file was a busy one in 2023. There were some highlights, like the passage of the federal Canada disability benefit. Stats Canada reported a 5% increase in the number of Canadians with disabilities. 
There's also been uh, a number of stories, including some pretty high fr- profile ones of airline passengers with disabilities being treated in uh, absurd, ridiculous, and outrageous ways. Rabia Hadar can break down a few of the highlights and lowlights of accessibility in 2023. Rabia is the National Director of Disability Without Poverty. Rabia, nice to chat with you again this morning. Nice to be here again. So let's start with the highlights. What was a key highlight for people with disabilities in Canada? Well, the biggest highlight that we expect to trigger a lot of good systems change was the passage of the Canada Disability Benefit Act, C-22, finally achieved royal assent at the end of June, and we expect it to be a game changer when it comes to financial security for people with disabilities living in poverty. How confident are you that the federal government and the provinces are going to get the consultations, regulations and implementations done in 2024 when it comes to the disability benefit? Well, I'm I'm a positive person, you know, for me, I don't take no for an answer. with every obstacle, there's an opportunity. So we've had some little obstacles in this journey with a cabinet shuffle, new minister, um, you know, lots of lots of little hiccups along the way. But we are confident that people are innately good and want to do good. And with that positive hope and wholehearted effort, we're expecting that public servants and parliamentarians are going to continue in the spirit of unanimous consent that we saw in Parliament as Bill C-22 made its way to becoming law, that that will carry forward in making some difficult choices around budgeting the benefit and getting the regulations done. And as people with disabilities, talking to people with disabilities across this country and being a person with a disability, I'm confident that we're going to be very persistent in having our voices and views reach the powers that be to do the right thing. I think you can acknowledge, though, that the clock is ticking here, right? That certainly there's going to be an election in 2025. So it means that whatever work needs to be done needs to really be sped up here in 2024. Yes, and as a part of that effort at Disability Without Poverty, we took on our own consultation process to share knowledge with government of exactly what disabled people across this country expect. And in our first phase, we've engaged over 4,500 responses to our questionnaire, and, and that's a ninety over 90% completion rate, Dave. So wow. people with disabilities are ready and willing to be heard. Yeah, definitely a mobilized mobilized front on that one for sure. People with disabilities definitely understand the urgency. There's no doubt about that one. Okay, Rabia, what about the flip side here? Uh, there are too many airline stories to list all in one yeah. single paragraph to set this up. Um, there's probably a couple really notable ones, like the chief accessibility officer having a uh, terrible experience. I believe the airline lost uh, her wheelchair. There was a gentleman who had to drag himself off a plane uh, with his arms uh, hanging on to the sides of seats along the floor in Las Vegas a few months ago. That's just two. What's your overall response to the continued issues of accessibility with airline travel? Well, again, we have the letter of the law, right? We need the passion and intent and spirit honored of that law. 
and 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 truly there is nothing about us without us if disabled people are not given opportunity to fully lead those processes to implement accessibility wholeheartedly I don't have a lot of confidence in able-bodied people doing the right thing. Sometimes they just want to adhere to the letter of the law and check the box and say, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, we're accessible. But in reality, they're not because they're not getting the full picture and the importance of the fact that, you know, if somebody has some limited mobility, it doesn't always um, mean that it's consistently possible for them to walk around. They're, they may be, you know, st standing at, off of their wheelchair, they're able to stand and take a couple of steps, but that doesn't mean that they can walk through an airplane. Like, what the heck is wrong with people? If you don't have disabled people talking and sharing and making decisions, then we're not going to honor the spirit of accessibility. Yeah, I look at the airline travel situation as two-pronged. It's a slipping in service standards and a lack of training for individuals yes. To, yes. To, 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 to deal with people with disabilities to offer accommodation. But I also think that this is an extension of service standards, but when you're talking about perpetually damaging and losing mobility devices, that's just an attention to detail thing that, that the airlines have missed on for decades now. And they continue to miss with like limited accountability. Absolutely. And, you know, we think that we trained staff and, you know, we checked the box. That's what I mean. It's, it's the letter of the law as opposed to the intent. Accessibility is an ongoing process. Yeah. Ongoing learning. If you're not living it, you don't know it. You know, Rabia, switching gears here, there's been a lot of interesting data released all year long from the census from a couple of years ago. Stats Canada is processing a lot of this information from the long-form censuses that were done a couple of years ago. And just a couple of weeks ago, they released some data about an increase in the percent of the population that identifies having at least one disability. 27% of the public about 8 million adult Canadians reported having at least one disability in 2022. That's a 5% increase from the last time StatsCan collected this data. What impact do you think a 5% increase is going to have on government policy? That's a significant number, Dave, and that stretches across like across the board, right? We're seeing that increase as a result of climate change, the environment, natural disasters, COVID, wars and calamities around the world that trigger disablement and are impacting our numbers right here in Canada. Times are tough. That also takes a toll on people. So social policy, public policy across the board has to give greater consideration to the fact that we have more disabled people in this country and we need to invest in making sure that their quality of life is enabling them to thrive. Because when people with disabilities thrive, people with disabilities can contribute can offer much more to their society. But when society doesn't offer the appropriate supports needed for them to thrive, then it's a slippery slope of hardship, of barriers, and that also impacts society as a whole. So we, again, 
need to reflect on the fact that we were quoting 6 million disabled people in this country, and now we're talking 8 million disabled people. That's a substantial increase. And we really got to figure out what we can do right to support disabled people in this country so that they can fully participate and thrive and contribute and help strengthen our social fabric and our economy. Yeah, I, I think there's also a component too that, that there needs to be an understanding of what identify means versus acquired disability. I think there needs to be a particular focus here on maybe offering some assistance in transition for people who've acquired a disability or only maybe being diagnosed with something later in life as disability becomes a little more common. I think it really speaks to the way in which disability is supported, not just in terms of raw policy, but in terms of understanding there might be some new members of the population that are just trying to figure out like what their identity is within the spectrum, mm -hmm. the broad spectrum of disability. Absolutely, and the needs are very different yes. between the two. Yes, absolutely. The, the identity, the needs, there's, there's a whole bunch of different orientation and mobility. There, there's all kinds of stuff that needs to be considered there. So I, I think that's a huge policy implication for sure. Rabia, I was also really delighted to hear you look abroad a little bit, taking the focus outside of Canada, because 2023 was marked by a lot of interna international conflict. You can think about Azerbaijan, you can think about Ukraine and Russia, you can think about... Uh, Israel and Gaza. You can look at a lot of the conflict within Central and Western Africa right now. There is a lot of international conflict, which means increasing numbers of disability. How are you applying the international lens to the way you look at disability in 2023? Well, again, you know, our policies need to reflect upon the fact that war causes disablement. You know, and when people acquire disability through trauma, through torture, through terror, it's a very different experience and it's very complex. You know, as disabled people, Dave, you and I can talk straight up, right? Yeah. Like, we don't want somebody to become blind. If they happen to, yay, we know how to live with it. No probs, no questions, no, you know, we, no pity party here, yeah, well, right? Welcome, like, welcome, welcome to the club. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, welcome to the club. We're, we're, we're happy but, to have you. We're happy to have you. We're happy to support you, but we don't wish it upon you, mm -hmm. right? So why would we engage in activity as humanity that causes disablement. Why? Why would we do that? So we really have to reflect at year end, you know, when people are having holy days and holidays that, you know, there are a lot of people who aren't enjoying what able-bodied people in this world are enjoying through no fault of their own. Rabia, let's head on a little bit of a, a little bit of a positive here. What's your outlook for 2024? Well, like I said, there's always hope. I'm a positive person. I believe that if we set our minds to it, we can make change happen. I believe in the power of people. So I am a real optimist saying disabled people will rise up in 2024 and will be heard, will be felt, will be seen saying, do not leave us behind anymore. I like that. Not on a platter of political maneuvering. You know, it's time to make things right. It's time for systems change. And the broader public, people in positions of power, 
are going to see the light, realize that 27% of people are disabled around them, and that that 100% chance of acquiring a disability is really possible. And they're going to do right by disabled people by budgeting this Canada Disability Benefit and getting it out the door in an adequate amount to lift disabled people out of poverty. We need every person in this country thriving, and that includes people with disabilities living in poverty. That is quite the closing statement. Rabia, thank you for this. It's been a pleasure chatting with you the last couple of months. Talk to you in 2024. Absolutely. Thank you. That's Rabia Hedar, the National Director of Disability Without Poverty. Let's head over to the East Coast of Canada for an entertainment talk with Laura Bain. Laura Bain, you've got podcasts on the brain today. Yeah, I sure do, Dave. So I was digging around a little bit in my Apple Podcast app, which is where I listen to all of my podcasts. I discovered they had quite a few sort of top 2023 lists, Ooh. including a list of most shared podcasts. Ooh. And that brought me back to a conversation we had on the Daily Poll a little while ago about when someone shares a podcast with you, do you hit share? <laughs> do I hit play or hit share? Yeah, exactly. Oh, sorry. <laughs> do you hit play? That's what I meant to say. <laughs> um, so I have, I just wanted to kind of look at a few of these top most shared podcasts, uh, what people are obviously sharing with one another and see if you're going to hit play or oh, not. Oh, I love it. We're going to play a game called, are you going to give this a listen? Yes. Oh, I love it. Okay, so the first one, this was top of a number of lists, was the Huberman Lab. I hadn't heard of it before. But on this podcast, they discuss neuroscience and how our brain and its connection with the organs of our body control our perceptions, our behaviors, and our health. The host, Andrew Huberman, is a, new, is a neuroscience and neuroscientist and a uh, professor of neurobiology at Stanford. So he's got all the qualifications. There's a lot of episodes, over 150 of them. The most recent episode, Dave, I'm going to share it with you. How sugar and processed foods impact your health. Oh, dear. Are you... Are you hitting play? Uh, it sounds like a very intelligent podcast. I'm going to pass, though. I need escapism from uh, into that kind of intelligent talk in my podcast world. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I mean, I sometimes like these sort of self-improvement podcasts, but this one sort of sounds like it sounds like work. Someone is sharing this <laughs> yeah. with me to like improve me in a way that I'm not necessarily. Yeah, don't into. come. Don't come for my sugar, Huberman. Yeah. Okay, the witch trials of J.K. Rowling. I guess a lot of people are sharing this one. That kind of surprised me. So this is a free press podcast, which examines some of the most contentious conflicts of our time through the life and career of the, quote, world's most successful author, J.K. Rowling. So host uh, Megan Phelps Roper sits down with J.K. Rowling to speak with unprecedented candor. And from what I can tell, this is a seven-part podcast. It's sort of a limited series. It mostly focuses on her views around sex and gender. Oh, dear. Are you hitting play? <laughs> no, I uh, don't need more cancel culture in my life either. Mm -mm. Yeah, J.K. Rowling is sort of canceled for me as well. <laughs> I still like the Harry Potter movies. I'm sorry, but no, I am not. Yeah, you know what? Like, it's all good. Like, if people still want to like their Harry Potter, that's fine. But I don't need to hear from J.K. Rowling anymore. Yeah, for sure. 
Okay, I'm going to move on to the no good, terribly kind, wonderful lives of Barry and Honey Sherman. Now, this one caught my attention because there's actually two podcasts about this couple. There's also a Toronto, is it Toronto Sun or Toronto Stars, Toronto Star podcast called The Billionaire Murders. So this is a true crime podcast. There were lots of true crime podcasts in the kind of top listens, and it looks at the kind of honey and this is again, it's like a. In for uh, we're going for a lot of swings and misses here because I'll pass on that one too. True crime doesn't do it for me. Oh, see, I this one was on my list, and I sort this is one that I feel like I've sort of um, was really popular, and I kind of missed listening to. So I would say like over break when I have the brain space, this is one I might listen to. <laughs> okay, all right, that's cool. So, I'm striking out here, Dave, but I think maybe with this last one, uh, and a sports metaphor is appropriate. So, spit and chicklets. <laughs> it's former a... NHL. Go ahead. Go sorry. Ahead. Go, no, you please, please, please. Okay. Former NHL vets Ryan Whitney, Paul Bissonette, Barstool sports writer, Rear Admiral, and producer Mike Grinnell. You can tell this is my comfort zone. Bring on, bring their outspoken and irreverent opinions to the masses. So this focuses on the NHL, but also pop culture. And the most recent episode talks about all kinds of things that mean nothing to me, including when are we going to get a best on best tournament? Ah. Uh, okay, I'm going to be careful here because uh, the Barstool fans, the Stoolies, are an aggressive bunch. Not okay. not wild about this podcast. A lot of people in the hockey world absolutely adore it. They actually did a little bit of journalism this year. Uh, Columbus Blue Jackets coach Mike Babcock got fired because of some journalism this podcast did about the way he was treating players in the locker room, which was really, really fascinating. It's just a little too bro-y for me, Laura. Like, like I, I, There's some hockey podcasts that I love, 32 Thoughts with Elliot Friedman and, and Jeff Merrick of Sportsnet, Puck Soup with uh, with uh, uh, Sean McAdoo of The Athletic, and uh, Ryan, oh gosh, what's Ryan's last name, of Elite Prospects. They're a little bit more uproarious, and and but they're a little more sincere than the Spitting Chicklet guys. So uh, yeah, the, the Spitting Chicklets is a little too uh, bro-y for my taste, but, I, but I, I do think they do some interesting work. Yep, and a lot of what you just said was words to me. So, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not hitting play on this one. Although the most recent episode had Michael Bublé, and I was like, oh, is he sports? Yes, apparently. <laughs> apparently he's an owner. So. Yeah. Michael Bublé likes sports. By the way, Ryan Lambert is the co-host of the Puck Soup podcast with Sean McAdoo of The Athletic. So, so good. Okay, Laura, got to be quick on this one because we've got to get out of here. What's your favorite podcast besides Now oh, with boy. Dave Brown? Just one. Okay. I listen to a lot of travel podcasts, but I'm going to throw a little love to the show Risk with host Kevin Allison, where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I've been listening to that one for about a decade. It is not safe for work, but it is honest and candid, and I really just, that is one I have shared with people, and people have started listening to it. I'll save you some of the sports and culture podcasts that I listen to, although I listen to a lot of those. Uh Check out Plain English with Derek Thompson. Plain English with Derek Thompson. It's a news and current affairs show by a writer for The Atlantic. His name's Derek Thompson. Fair enough. Uh, really, really good. Really, really good. Two episodes a week. Uh, always interesting topics that are in the news. So, so smart. So, so good. He's a great communicator. Love that show. Hey, Laura, one last thing before I let you go. I know I've kept you way over time here. Uh, there's a storm in the Atlantic provinces. Mm -hmm. How are you holding up right now? 
fine. You know what, where I live, I feel like we lose power so easily and we haven't lost it uh, today or yesterday. So knock on wood, I've got a one last assignment to get out uh, for tomorrow. So hoping it stays that way. Okay, top notch. Laura, thank you for this. Have a great day. Thanks, Dave. You too. That is Laura Bain. Coming up after the break, I've got an update on some of the implications from that storm in the Atlantic provinces as part of the regional news update. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in audio form at amiplus.ca. I'm Dave Brown. It's Tuesday, December the 19th, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, a newspaper company in Nova Scotia has started to put obituaries behind a paywall. Journalist Rebecca Dingwell will offer a few more details on the situation. And there's one more edition of the weekly news quiz to cap off the year. Will Karen McGee, Alicia Yardley, or Elizabeth Moeller have bragging rights over the holidays? You'll find out. But the hour begins with the regional news updates. Starting in the Atlantic provinces, people experiencing homelessness in the Atlantic provinces are trying new methods to deal with the windy, wet conditions brought on by the severe storm. John Kennedy has the story. Nikki Greer, president of a nonprofit group helping unhoused people at a lower Sackville ball field on the outskirts of Halifax, says almost all residents now have ice fishing tents. Yesterday evening, she said all of the tents had been tied down securely and loose objects had been removed as gusts of over 100 kilometers per hour were expected from the weather. However, Greer and other advocates for the homeless say the city and the province need to do more to provide indoor shelters as winter storms grow more vicious. John Kennedy, The Canadian Press. And over to Quebec, a group representing medical heads of Quebec's emergency rooms says overcrowding is out of control. Dr. Sophie Gosselet lays out the conditions in a Montreal area hospital. You can't leave these people waiting for too long. And um, that's what's happening right now. Our emergency stretcher are clogged by patients who have been stabilized and are waiting to have the rest of their treatment on the hospital ward. Dr. Gosselin says the pressure is getting to everyone. The pressure is untenable in the emergency departments in the province. Our occupation percentage is in the highest that we've ever, ever seen. The number of patients waiting for a bed on the ward reaches levels that are making it dangerous Doctors have called on the province to increase resources. And finally, in Ontario, something a little bit lighter for you. Olivia and Noah are still topping the list of the most popular baby names in Ontario. Don Kelly has the list. Olivia held the top spot for girls for the 14th year in a row, wow. followed by Charlotte, Amelia, and Emma. Noah was the number one name for boys for the fourth year in a row, followed by Liam, Oliver, and Theodore. Chloe made it to the top 10 names for girls for the first time, tied with Isla for seventh place. Don Kelly, the Canadian Press.
a little bit of fun for you to consider there. Maybe uh, you've got something on the way as a Christmas present coming out this year and you're thinking about names. So there's a few suggestions for you. Or if you want, you can buck the trend. Now you know what to avoid. Okay, that's your look at the news-ish. Here's Brock Richardson with a sports chat. Okay, over to the nation's capital. The Ottawa Senators have fired their head coach, DJ Smith. Getham Kubla adds a little bit more context. The Ottawa Senators have fired coach DJ Smith and replaced him on an interim basis with senior advisor Jock Martin. Smith is the fourth NHL coach fired this season. Martin was hired as an advisor less than two weeks ago, with members of the front office saying that did not mean Smith's job was in danger. Ottawa has since lost five of six to fall into last place in the Eastern Conference. Hall of Famer and longtime Senators captain Daniel Alfredson was named an assistant on Martin's staff. I'm Geffen Coolbaugh. All right, Brock Richardson, you're there at the AMI Sports Desk. Your reaction to the Ottawa Senators finally dropping the axe on DJ Smith. I First of all, I laughed because everyone in the world knew when Jacques Martin came on, it was like, oh, yeah, that this is what's going on. I mean, Ottawa could try to sell this to you, that this was what was going on. DJ Smith's job wasn't in jeopardy, but let's be honest with each other, it was. And it's no surprise that Jacques is now in uh, as a replacement in the interim tank, so no surprise there. The question that kept coming up yesterday was, why now versus two weeks ago? And I... I I don't really have a good answer for you because I don't really know. I don't know why we looked and said, now is the time we're doing this versus before. Do you have something that you could piece together and say, why now? Or is it just media and they just, or or organizations and they just do things when they do them? Well, I think uh, Getham Coolball laid it out pretty nicely there. They've lost five of their last six, right? There, There was some hope that they got back from Sweden. They won a couple games in Sweden. They were feeling good. And then the wheels fell off again. And, and there's probably just a point where they, where the organization said to themselves, well, we fired our general manager earlier this year, but what, six weeks ago, four weeks ago? Our coach is underperforming. The team is not meeting expectations. Things are ugly. Let's get DJ Smith out of here. Like there, there was some talk whether DJ Smith would even have started the year as the team's head coach if their new owner, Michael Anlauer, had been able to finalize the transaction before the last offseason began. So I think the, 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 the sword of Damocles had been hanging over DJ Smith for uh, the better part of four or five months. And you lose five or six going into the Christmas break. The team knows that in a couple days they're going to get a couple days off. Just go for a fresh start going into the holidays and the new year. I I actually think the timing makes some sense to me, Brock, because the wheels were falling off this bus. They were, and they've fallen off a few times and then come back on a little bit and fallen off again, as you point out. I'm kind of surprised that they didn't put put a GM in place before they did this. The reason I say that is because now, you know, Jacques is has the interim tag. You don't know who the boss is going to be. And maybe I'm looking at it and, and people are going, yeah, but it's not as easy to put a GM in place as it is to to relieve a coach of its duties. I, I'm just surprised that, you know, we're, we're over a month now since the GM Pierre Dorian was released. And so yeah, I'm kind of surprised that he, that somebody wasn't put up there before we, we 
we let DJ Smith go to put in their guy, you know, but we'll yeah. see how things go I, I, and we'll see how it goes. It's probably interim. It, it, it's probably interim until the spring for the Ottawa centers at this point, interim coach, interim GMs that they're going for a full blown uh, flushing of this organization and they're, they'll start fresh at the draft. And uh, yeah, it, it, it's a, it's a bad scene in Ottawa. It's a really bad it, scene. It is. Uh, it is. Brock, this is the second Canadian coach fired this year. Jay Woodcroft in Edmonton was the first four coaches fired since the preseason began and that's got you thinking about nhl coaches in canada and their lifespan be ready though by the way i'm, I'm probably going to attack your premise so that's fine you can attack my premise uh sheldon keith is now the longest tenured canadian coach uh canadian team coach in the league and this is a guy who's been here now for four years he was hired in uh October of uh, 2019, or sorry, November of 2019, and he still remains now. I don't know whether this means anything. There was a lot of discussion yesterday in different places where it's like, oh, he's the longest tenured coach. Yeah, but look at the turnover we've had. You know, um, I, I don't know if it means anything. It, it really didn't stand out to me, but it seemed to be the talk of yesterday's uh toronto media and radio shows so i'm interested in your take does it mean anything do you care no it doesn't mean a thing because it's such typical canadian myopic media coverage <laughs> where they don't think about perspective or anything else how many teams are there in the nhl brock 32 nailed it boom got it how many coaches have a longer tenure than sheldon keefe from being named head coach in november of 2019 of the toronto maple leafs i don't know if we're looking at a full league. It's got to be across the whole league. A, a lot more than than if I, if I was to guess, I would say ten or eleven probably have longer tenure than he does. Nope, only five coaches have a longer tenure than D, than Sheldon Keefe in Toronto. John Cooper for the Tampa Bay Lightning, a couple of Stanley Cup rings. Mike Sullivan in the, for the Pittsburgh Penguins, a couple of Stanley Cup rings. Jared Bednar in Colorado, a Stanley Cup ring. Rob Brindamore in Carolina, four appearances in the Eastern Conference Finals, and Todd McClellan in Los Angeles, a team going through a rebuild. So it's such typical, narrow-focused Canadian sports media to be like oh we're so hard on our coaches here there's such a high turnover the whole league turns over their coaches unless you win and what have canadian teams not done since 1993 brock won a stanley cup bingo yeah. brock yeah. that's all the time we got for today thanks boss talk to you later no problem. That's Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk. Coming up after the break, a newspaper company in Nova Scotia has started to put obituaries behind a paywall. Journalist Rebecca Dingwell will offer a little more insight on the situation. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. A newspaper company in Nova Scotia has started to put obituaries behind a paywall. This caught the attention of journalist Rebecca Dingwell, and Rebecca has some more thoughts on this situation and the practice of putting obituaries 
behind a paywall. So let's start by saying good morning to Rebecca out there in the Halifax area. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning. So let's just get a bit of an overview here. What is the situation with the company Saltwire? Yeah, so Saltwire, I think most people in the Maritimes who consume news will recognize that name. They own a lot of papers out this way, uh, namely the Halifax, with largely considered to be the paper of record here, the Chronicle Herald. So uh, recently, Saltwire, um, although they do post obituaries online these days, they made the decision that um, obituaries were going to be one of the things that they put behind a paywall. Some of their articles are, are paywalled, some aren't. What's considered quote unquote premium goes behind a paywall. I don't know how they determine that, but um, yeah, I guess suffice to say that obituaries are now going behind a paywall as well. Why does this decision not sit right with you? I think first and foremost, people pay um, hundreds of dollars, if my understanding is correct, for uh, an obituary to be printed in any newspaper, really. It's not just an issue with Saltwire, but they're already paying hundreds of dollars to have that printed. So then again, to put it behind a paywall doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. It's kind of like um, other people have pointed out, it's almost like putting sponsored content or like an ad behind a paywall. Uh, this has already been paid for. So why, why are you getting readers to pay for it again? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And then just kind of from, I guess, the, the moral standpoint is I think that the death industry in general tends to be very predatory and, um, you know, hits the bereaved with a whole bunch of really high, um, in some cases, really stressful costs. So I think it just kind of adds to the the darkness that I feel it is around that whole industry that I I wish was not there. Rebecca, there there are actually a lot of threads to pull at from that one answer, but but let's talk about the industry more broadly, the industry around dying, because I've had a very similar reaction as a few family members and friends have passed over the years. I was stunned when I got a closer look at what it costs to arrange funeral services or, or, or coffins or burial plots, or even if you're moving towards more of like the cremation model, it's thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of dollars just for a family to quote, I'm putting the air quotes on this, pay tribute to a loved one. It, 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 really, like, it, it, it really struck me as an upsetting practice in a very upsetting and traumatic time for a lot of people. I completely agree. And I had a similar experience when my dad died several years back. And I've kind of never been the same since then in the way that I, I think about death and the death industry. And, you know, we, we talk about cremation, for example, and I understand that is a practice that takes up a lot of energy. So it is a costly practice. And I can understand logically why it costs money. But I think it's one of those things that pe people don't know that there are other options or that maybe those options aren't offered to them. I'd love to just, I, hopefully when I die, I just somebody just puts me directly in the ground. Um, if anything, that, that's what I would prefer. Um, 
but I feel like people don't necessarily know there are other options aside from what's sort of uh, typically offered or what is the quote unquote right thing to do. I, I think we need to have conversations about, um, you know, why, why are we actually doing these things this way? And maybe we need to um, shift our understanding and our, our sort of uh, the way we deal with it in Western culture, because I feel like um, it's not talked about enough and it's not, um, you know, the, the options aren't explored enough. It's getting a little bit better, but yeah. in general. I, I want to come back to the obituary side of this because that's obviously the jumping off point for this conversation. What are the other options? If somebody doesn't want to pay hundreds of dollars to have their obituary printed and then posted online and then not to have to pay to get behind the paywall to read the obituary of a friend or a loved one. So there are a few things. Um, there is, um, and I, I hesitate to call this free because you do have to pay to have a funeral, but the funeral home will post an obituary, quote unquote, free. And I think it's legacy.com that has a compilation of those. So if you are having a funeral, um, that is an option. Um, I actually launched a WordPress site a few weeks ago, um, and it's called NovaScotiaObituaries.org. And I decided that I was just going to do a pay-what-you-can obituary blog site situation. Um, I've gotten a, a bit of attention towards it. I haven't gotten any requests for posts yet, but it was just something I thought of. If, if I can offer this for free um, and nobody's done it yet, why why wouldn't I? So um, I'm just focusing on Nova Scotia for now. But if you are in Nova Scotia, that is an option. You can contact me there and um, I'll help you out. Give that address one more time there, uh, Rebecca. It's NovaScotiaObituaries.org. So the last thread that I would pull at here in this conversation, and not to get too engaged in media navel-gazing, as soon as you brought this story to the production team, it got the wheels rolling in my head about the way in which newspapers are part of the fabric of a culture, but how culture, because of the online world, has somewhat pivoted away from newspapers. There was there were a lot of reasons why you used to have to pay a dollar or two dollars to pick up a paper at the local convenience store dip in or get it delivered to your doorstep. And it was things, quite literally, like sports scores, movie listings, and things like obituaries. That was something that people read every single day. Day because they wanted to know if a friend or a family member or a colleague or a loved one or an acquaintance passed away, and it was a way to enrich a community spirit, even in a time of sadness or passing. And the more that newspapers continue to pivot away from the things that create community and create fabric and put those pieces together, the more that society as a whole is going to continue to pivot away from newspapers. I know for people like you and myself who are journalists and broadcasters, we, it, it, it's a sad reality. It's a reality that we know. But this speaks to the institutionalism of newspapers, maybe forgetting what their core purpose and identity is in a community. 
Yeah, I completely agree. And it's somewhat ironic as somebody who, you know, writes a monthly column for Saltwire and is freelance for them. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that, and that's interestingly part of the justification that Saltwire put out for putting obituaries behind a pay paywall. Well, you used to have to pay for the newspaper anyway to get these. So it therefore it makes sense for you to have to pay to get them online. And logically I can I can I can follow that thread to a point. I'm like, okay, I, I see what you're saying. However, um, the way we consume newspapers, whether it's a physical paper or not, has changed. And you're right, the way um I think that whether we like it or not, there is um in a way, some of these media companies almost act as a mirror to our community and our culture. And I think um, that one of the biggest issues right now, in my opinion, with paper is, is them kind of digging their heels in and saying, well, we want it, we still want to do things the way that we've always done them as much as possible, even though it's been proven that that, that doesn't work. You know, newspapers are shutting left and right and, and they're not making money, which is why they make questionable moves like this one. Um, but, you know, it's like, well, why are you trying so hard to push against and, and move against the grain when you can say, okay, how can we work with the way that people consume news and how people read things now? How yeah. can we work with that and make it work for us? Yeah. What are the things that are going to drive traffic that you don't want to put behind a paywall? And it's a very delicate balance, right? Because you want to make sure that if you're getting people, you, you want people to get behind the paywall, right? You want people to spend the money to pay for the contents. And that's important. You know, I think you and I can both agree as people who make contents that we want people to, to, to pay for it or, or offer something for it for our services. This isn't a labor of charity for, for anybody involved. But what are the things that are actually going to get people to your site that then might make them want to jump behind that paywall? And something like obituaries could be a click driver, right? It gets you in the door, especially in the context of, of not having um, posts on places like Facebook and Instagram anymore. You have to be thinking about the value that your website brings to the table and why someone would actually go visit your website. And if all the good stuff is behind a paywall, then eventually all those clicks are going to dry up anyway, because there's never going to be discovery. Yeah, it's um, it's a tricky balance oh, yeah. of you know I, I I get it. We live under a capitalist society. We all gotta make money. I don't like it, but I get that that's the way it is. Um, I think there is they do have to balance that. The what's the like the service to the community? What's that um that whole you know the, the right to know? That's what journalism and newspapers were all supposed to be about, right? Like what what does the community have a right to know? And can we offer those things, those necessary bits of information for free while also offering sort of additional content behind a paywall that people might not necessarily need to read in the immediate sense, but they'll want to read. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't have all the solutions, but <laughs> I just know that what's happening right now is not working. So may maybe this is something that as an industry, we need to think about Rebecca, maybe in just talk about it in circles. <laughs> Rebecca, maybe in 2024, you and I can fix the journalism industry, but maybe that's too much for 2023. Thank you for this. Have a lovely holiday season and uh, talk to you in the new year.
Yeah, you too. Take care. That is Rebecca Dingwell, a journalist based in the Halifax area. Coming up after the break, an NDP MP is proposing giving volunteer firefighters a tax credit, a big tax credit. Elizabeth Moeller will bring that topic to the roundtable. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Ramya Amuthan is standing by for a roundtable chat. Elizabeth Moeller, you've got a topic here about volunteer firefighters in Canada. Yes, I do, because that number of volunteer firefighters has been declining over the last several years. So NDP Member of Parliament Gord Johns has actually said that volunteer firefighters is sponsoring a bill in the House this month to boost a tax credit for volunteer firefighters from $3,000 to $10,000. And he says rural communities in Canada really rely on these firefighters and save local governments money. Really, the, the volunteers we rely on are exhausted. They're working full-time jobs outside of fighting fires. They're taking on more paid work to keep up with rising costs, and they just can't keep volunteering at this scale. And, you know, right now we're, we're dealing with a, a human resource crisis like every every sector in our country. So I thought we could chat today about the role of volunteer firefighters and that the, the role that they play in our community. So should we be depending on volunteer firefighters and other volunteer first responders in our communities for public emergencies? And Ramya, I'd like to start with you on this one. I do think the, you know, intention around um, volunteerism as well as, you know, value to the community, community building through all kinds of support is, you know, necessary and obviously well-intentioned. The things that I struggle with are training or understanding protocol or, you know, all these other things, which maybe these things are already very well dealt with, but these are the things that I uh, worry about just on a, like, everyday person level. And I guess that the, the question is, do people feel like without compensation, they're able to do everything that they could do and would do with compensation? Um, and that's kind of the, the question mark here for me. Ramya, I think you and I are sharing a bit of a brain on this one because there are two sides to this sword that, that make a lot of sense, right? That if you are going to depend on volunteer firefighters, you should be offering some compensation and $10,000 might seem like a lot of money in a tax credit, but it's not as if they're getting a bonus $10,000. There needs to be other income involved here. It's, it's not strictly a $10,000 payout to volunteer firefighters. So, so this, like, this idea in general, broad terms, really good idea and something that should probably be done because volunteer firefighters were the backbone of a lot of the efforts to battle blazes across the country yeah. uh, this summer, right? Like it's such an important, critical cog to a lot of work that gets done. But there's the other part of me that says the role of a firefighter, the role of another first responder is such a critically 
important job and it's not to underplay the value of the volunteer firefighters but what does it suggest to us as a society elizabeth when we take these really important positions that have typically been unionized labor well-paid well-trained high standard positions and then kick it down the road to be led by volunteers. Mm -hmm. I'm not questioning, Elizabeth, the caliber of volunteer firefighters, but there's a slippery slope in this practice. Yeah, it's it's really true. I want to pick up on something that the um, you know that we talked a little bit about when we were uh, just at the beginning of the segment here, and that is around this shortage, this decline. So I worry that um, because this is such a high pressure, high risk job, and one that deserves recognition and compensation, and we're seeing that shortage, what happens when we don't have enough volunteer firefighters in communities? Right, communities that are relying on uh, rural communities were mentioned that are relying on on volunteer firefighters. What does that mean for the safety and the well-being of that community? So I think this is this is a really good sort of clarion call to think about that and how we are um, treating and recognizing our volunteer firefighters. And I also think about, you know, what happens when somebody gets long-term injured um, from a volunteer yeah, firefighter yeah. role, right? Like that's a huge, for me, that's exactly where my brain went. I thought, well, what happens if there's a serious injury and that affects not only their ability to volunteer, but other work that they might do? Because in the clip we heard, they have full time jobs, right? They're doing this in addition to, in fact, one of my elementary school teachers was a volunteer firefighter um, and then taught uh, school during the day. So I, that really was a concern for me that I, that I wanted to kind of talk about. Yeah, it's, it's, it's noble, noble, important work. It's also dangerous, dangerous mm -hmm. work. So that's one side of the disability lens you can apply to this, which is the possibility of acquiring a disability while doing dangerous work. I think the other disability lens you could apply to this, and this is something that I say far too often on the show, that kindness and quality of character is not a replacement for fundamentally good policy. And Ramya, again, not disparaging volunteer firefighters or the practice, but this feels like provincial, federal, regional, and local governments abandoning sound mm -hmm. fundamental policy and replacing it with quality of character and kindness. I feel the same way. I feel the same way. And that's why I started this whole thing off with the intention and volunteerism as a cog in how we run society, how we, you know, need to rely on each other beyond um, pay and compensation and uh, like all these other different ways is very important. We need to cre keep this side of it up. And we saw so much of uh, this come up in not just in firefighting, but in all these other factors and first respondents just in neighborly ways. But when you're talking about something that's such a mentally and physically tough position for people, we need to talk about more than just the intention and just the, um, yeah, we need more people. Where can we find them? There's got to be something that is being offered that relies on not just the people's um intention, but also their ability to be trained, their ability to hold up the end that are the ends that are very difficult and challenging. And that is physically and mentally like we know the kind of things that people go through to become firefighters, to become uh, trained, to be able to respond in all these 
heavy, heavy weights. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, I, I, I think we can leave it here. But, but yeah, there is a thread to pull out here, like Ramya said, in regards to the ideals and ideas of volunteerism and its importance, and, and to a certain degree how that's crumbling in society. But there's no time for that one today because we have to get to the news quiz in the next segment. So, Elizabeth, don't go too far because you're going to be one of those contestants. Ramya, you can't go too far either because you're going to tell me what's coming up on Kelly and Ramya at 2 p.m. Eastern time today. Yep, we're talking about uh, benefits of homemade food versus store-bought goods. So we're talking... Yeah, not just processed food or anything like that, even things that you can just uh, buy that are prepared goods, foods from the stores. Julia Karanch is our nutritionist, going to talk more about that. Also, uh, Catherine Valinga, she joined us on our primetime taping of Kelly and Ramia. She's going to give us more insight on her mixology sessions because mm-hmm. we've got, you know, double dose of Zerkova vodka before we hit the holidays and mocktails. <laughs> Love for everybody. Of course. Uh, and <laughs> Dr. Danielle Johnkind, our veterinarian, is going to tell us how she, as a vet, celebrates the holidays and going into it and coming out in the new year. Uh, every time you do one of these food segments, Ramya, I feel very I seen. It's like, oh, don't eat processed food. But I love processed food. <laughs> That's why I said not just processed food. Yeah, you can get like a nice prepared meal. Nice prepared I, turkey dinner. You know, that, you know, Ramya, that actually was the topic of a daily poll a couple of weeks ago about food delivery services, like meal preparation services. And there's a couple that have emerged on the market that if I owned a microwave, I would definitely consider using. <laughs> but I don't own a microwave because I don't want to get either because I don't want to get one of these food deliveries kits where it's like, well, now I still need to make an hour making dinner. Like, that's no yeah, fun. But if you send me something that's like real organic food that I can microwave, mm-hmm. This is the best of both worlds, but I don't have enough counter space for a microwave. Air fryer? Do you have an air fryer? I do not have an air fryer. I don't have counter space for that either. Like, if, okay. like if I get rid of an oven, like if I if I get like get something, I've got to get rid of something, and the coffee yeah. machine's not going to go, the no. toaster's not going to go, and then I'm out of space. The toaster. Oh, you need the toaster. The toaster can go. No, no, you need the Dave. toaster. The toaster's some. Dave, you can toast in an air fryer. Okay, we'll talk about this off air. Ramya, thank you for this. Have a lovely day. You too. That's Ramya and within the co-host of Kelly and Ramya coming your way 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Coming up after the break, one more edition of the weekly news quiz in 2023. Who will have the bragging rights over the holiday season? This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Can you feel that? It's your competitive juices flowing for another edition of the Weekly News Quiz. That is right. The last quiz of 2023. Let's bring in the contestants. You've heard from her all day. It's Elizabeth Moeller. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello, Dave. And a news quiz regular is Karen McGee. Hello, Karen. Hello, everybody. And part of the news quiz family, kind of a joiner in the autumn season, it's been Alicia Yardley. Hello, Alicia. 
Hello. All right, everybody is here loud and clear. Let's get into the game, starting with the rules. You can't play a game without rules. So there are three rounds of questions with three questions per round. Each question comes with three multiple choice options. If you answer the question without hearing the options, you get two points. If you answer the question with the options, you get one. If you get it wrong, I mock you and move along until the point is <laughs> awarded. The order of contestants was drawn by Mary Daniel. That's the wife of producer Paul Daniel, who wrote the questions. The order will be Elizabeth Moeller, Karen McGee, and Alicia Yardley. So, starting in the world of international news, Elizabeth, last week, a car company recalled over 2 million vehicles due to reported insufficiency in the software designed to monitor a driver's attention. What company is it? Tesla. That is two points for Elizabeth Moeller. The software is designed to monitor the driver's attention while using the autopilot function. Elizabeth, off to a good start no here. No smart driving for me. No, not not yet at least. <laughs> not, no, no automated cars for blind people just yet, but there's Go. still hope. Uh, heading over to Karen McGee. Karen, Nobel Peace Prize winner Nargis Mohammadi was unable to accept her prize in person because she's imprisoned. In what country is she imprisoned? Can you give me the choices, please? Is it Iran, India, or Sri Lanka? I'm going to say Iran. That is correct. One point for Karen McGee. She's been imprisoned since 2016. Okay, so one point for Karen, two points for Elizabeth. Alicia, an opportunity here for you to get on the board. According to a United Nations report, which country is the new leading producer of the world's supply of opium? Who is now the top supplier of opium? producer of opium in the world uh can i get the choices please is it vietnam myanmar or afghanistan gonna say uh, myanmar that is correct one point for alicia yardley poppy cultivation in the former uh, in the former leading supplier afghanistan dropped by 95 percent after the taliban took back over last year so round one impressive everybody got their question right elizabeth without the option so elizabeth has two karen's got one alicia's got one it's anybody's game going into round number two karen you get the first crack of round number two though last week a city council in nova scotia announced it would be canceling its new year's day festivities in light of an ongoing homelessness crisis what city made the decision I'll take the choices, please. Is it Digby, Antigonish, or Halifax? I'm going to say Halifax. That is correct. One point for Karen McGee. The city council agreed to instead fund meals for people sleeping in tents. So there we go. Two points for Karen McGee. Two points for Elizabeth Moeller. One point for Alicia. So Alicia, you got an opportunity to jump ahead here, tie the whole thing up. The Vancouver Art Gallery turned an exhibit of paintings from a famed group of seven member into a study of how the works were later found to be fakes. Who was the group of seven painter? Oh, uh, can I get the choices, please? Is it A.J. Kassan, J.E.H. McDonald, or Emily Carr? Uh, Emily Carr? Incorrect. Elizabeth, the chance for a steal. Kassan or McDonald? 
I am going to say McDonald. That is one point for Elizabeth Moeller. In 2015, the gallery purchased the 10 oil sketches that were previously unknown to be associated with McDonald's. And then after the purchase, the authenticity of the sketches were found to be fakes. I think that sentence is a little confusing. I'll ask Paul about that later after the show. Okay. Okay, Elizabeth, question number three of round number two, a chance to expand your lead. Last week, a judge ordered a Vancouver Island candidate for the People's Party of Canada to stop referring to himself as a member of a particular profession. What profession was he claiming to be a part of? Options, please. Did he think he was a dentist, an engineer, or an accountant? B, I should have just gone with my gut because I thought that, but I wanted those options just to, you know, lock it in, lock that, it in, Dave. So that is correct. Engineer David Hilderman ran for the PPC in Saanich Gulf Islands in 2021. He has a university degree in engineering, but it's not licensed. So there you go. You got to be licensed to claim that you're an engineer. So Elizabeth is uh, jumping ahead here with four points. Karen at two, Alicia with one. It's still anybody's game going into round three. All of these questions are holiday-related, so it's going to include Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, and Christmas. Alicia, you get the Hanukkah question. Hanukkah wrapped up last week. When children play with a dreidel, they also do a little bit of gambling, but not with real money, but with money otherwise known as gilt, which is made of a particular type of of food ingredient. Alicia, what kind of food ingredient is guilt made of? Great question. And I think my uh, my Jewish dad would kill me if I didn't get this right. So chocolate. Bingo, bongo. <laughs> Two points for Alicia Yardley getting yourself up to uh, three points. So it's usually wrapped in gold or silver file. I uh, love Hanukkah. Been to a couple of uh, celebrations over the years. I really enjoy that one. Really, really enjoy that one. So Alicia's back in the game. Elizabeth, you need, you need this question. Question number two okay. of round number three. Kwanzaa is celebrated from December the 26th till January 1st. It celebrates family, culture, community, and the harvest. What do green candles represent during Kwanzaa? Uh, options, please. Is it hard work, self-determination, or hope? I am going to say hope. That is correct. One point for Elizabeth Moeller. The colors of Kwanzaa are black, red, and green. Black for the people, red for their struggle, and green for hope. So that puts uh, Elizabeth in a good position here, a commanding lead. Karen, you're pretty much out of this thing, but you can still compete for second place with this one. I, I know it's tough, Karen. You haven't had a lot of cracks at this because people have been nailing their questions. But this one's all about Christmas. You get the Christmas question. It's not about a Hallmark holiday movie, though, so, so, so that's, that, that's not quite fair. So the online gambling website CSGO Luck developed a list of the top 10 Christmas songs that boost productivity. What is the number one Christmas song that boosts productivity, Karen? That boosts productivity. This is the most bizarre <laughs> question I've ever had in my life. Yeah, I would I would love take, I would love to know their methodology on this. I'm gonna take a shot in the dark and I'm gonna say rocking around the Christmas tree. Boom! Two points, Brenda Lee, rocking around the Christmas tree. Although, by the way, not actually a Christmas song. It's a Thanksgiving song. 
Oh, well, that just blew that out of the water, yeah. didn't it? Yeah, well, you know, it's all good, though. It's, we'll call it holiday music. See, the beauty of using neutral terms like holiday in that equation. So that vaults Karen uh, into second place. But with that, the winner is... Elizabeth Moeller. Elizabeth, congratulations. Thank you, Dave. And I do love me a little rocking around the Christmas tree. Well, there you go. You see, look at that. A win-win all around. By the way, the methodology was all about beats per minute, and medical research suggests that higher beats per minute helps to relax one's brain and leads to higher productivity. So, you know, a banger, like a rocking around the Christmas tree uh, gets the job done by Brenda Lee. Okay, with that, I say goodbye to Elizabeth. Good job on the win. I also say goodbye to Alicia. Alicia, great effort, but, uh, but Elizabeth was just too strong today. So, Alicia, thank you. No worries. Thank you. Now, there's about two minutes left on the clock here. Karen McGee, the topic of the last segment in the roundtable about volunteer firefighters ticked you off a little bit because old Dave Brown here is a city boy and you want to attack my narrow focus. It's not a narrow focus. It's just a different focus, Dave. So growing up in a small town and living in a small town, we rely on volunteer firefighters. And they, men and women who give up their their holiday time to train, they are the first line of response. They know the people whose homes they're going to save. We could not afford to have a paid fire department here. I couldn't afford my taxes if we did because they cost a lot. We're lucky that we live between two pretty close cities, Brockville and Cornwall. When and if they need help, they call those guys in for help. They call in all the other fire departments around. There is lots of support for volunteer fire departments. They are really well-trained, but what they do most importantly in the towns like this is they provide education. So they will come around and like, I've had my door knocked on several times over the years by firefighters when they come in, they come and check all our um, smoke detectors, our carbon monoxide detectors. Do we have batteries? If people can't afford them, they give them to them. Um, so education is a lot of what they do. So we don't have a lot of the firefighters. I totally see your point about um, climate change. It's becoming a little trickier. Um, but I have full confidence in our local volunteer firefighters. And yeah. it sounded like some of you guys on the panel maybe didn't. And I just wanted to get that in there for all our small town people. I, I, I think it's a really good lens to apply here, but I do think it's important to note. I think we all sort of claimed we respected the work that is done by volunteer firefighters and we support the idea of a tax credit for local volunteer firefighters. But as a collective society, we need to start making some priorities and decisions, and it can't be public safety by a volunteerism. But Karen, we gotta go. I gotta, I gotta leave it there. Merry Christmas, happy holidays. Enjoy all the Save Christmas you, movies. my friend. I do, thank that, you. That's all the time there is for today until tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.